Thank you. Oh, snap. That's what the kids say, right, Tim? Thanks for that. Um, well, good morning. My name is Jared Irvine, pastor of, of junior high, and this morning I have the opportunity to preach to you guys. John is on a nice wrestle vacation, well-deserved, and so that means I'm up. And so this is an exciting time of year. We have graduations coming up, so high school students over here, yeah, you, some of you already had it, so yeah, yeah, congrats, college. Promotion Sunday and, and youth ministry is coming up, and so it's a really, really exciting time. That means summer is just around the corner, and I know it's kind of weird to think because it's so, weather is weird, right, today with the rain, and that's cool and awesome, but Summer, the hot weather will be here. We know this is how Visalia is, and it's coming, so enjoy it while, while it is here. But for summer, it's a super fun time of year where people take vacations, right? I mean, I mean, sure, most of you, maybe all of you have a summer vacation planned, and it's just a fun time to do that in the summer. And with vacation, it means you have to travel, right? You have to go on a, a journey. And now these journeys aren't always fun, right? I mean, how many, you guys probably have fond memories, maybe. Maybe not so fond memories. Getting in a car, driving for several hours, or getting to an airport and waiting, and waiting, and you're still waiting for, to get on that plane. But whatever your experience is, we've all been on a journey. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm in the Bible, and it's a, it's a psalm about a journey. And it's found, we're going to be looking at Psalm 120 this morning. Which if you open your Bibles, it's just, I, I was taught, you just like open to the middle of it. You probably hit the Psalms. It's 120, um, right after like the longest one in the Bible, 119. Fun fact. So Psalm 120, it, is, it begins this collection of Psalms. Ranging from Psalm 120 to 134. And it's called the Psalm of Ascents. As ascent means going up. You're ascending, or the antonym would be going down, descending. It's not smell or anything. So it's a song of ascent. And these were, these were used, many think, in Israel's history as they went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was located on Mount Zion, which is a mountain or a hill, and so you literally had to go up to get there, but also because it's a holy place, it's where God's temple was, where God's presence was specially dwelling, that it was going up. So no matter where, which direction you're coming from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And so they would sing or recite these, these psalms as they would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then in ancient Israel, their festival cycles, they would have to at least go to Jerusalem three times a year, and so these would be often used probably during that, that portion of their religious life. Now, Psalm 120 through 134 is actually kind of interesting because it's a pilgrimage. Like they sang it on pilgrimage, and it's also about a person on pilgrimage. And so this person's going. And Psalm 120 is the beginning. It's not only the first psalm of the section of the collection, but it's actually the guy as he first begins to go on the journey when he first begins to go to Jerusalem. So let's read it. Psalm 120, 
The superscription, which is the small little words, usually underneath, says, A song of ascents. It says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for, for war. The genesis of a journey. They say every journey begins with the first step, right? In order to go anywhere, doesn't matter if you're going across your living room or you're going all the way to China, you have to take the first step. But there is a prior step to the actual physical step. That is, you have to have a change of mindset. You have to first decide to go on the journey, to, to go across the room in the first place. And so what is your catalyst? What gets you to move? What takes you from standing still into motion? What is your genesis of the journey? The destination for the psalmist is Jerusalem. This is where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God there. And you have a destination as well on your vacations, whether you're going to you're going to Disneyland, you're going to Pismo Beach, you're going to Oregon. I don't know why you go there, but you're going to Oregon. It's awesome. Just randomly came to mind. You're going somewhere. You have a destination. And by the way, you can't be on a journey if there's no destination, because then you're just going in circles. So you have to have a destination. You're going to a place. But what's your motivation for going? Now, again, the weather's nice and cool, so enjoy it. But, you know, later on, like end of July, August, it's going to be super hot here. And a lot of people in the valley, they say, you know, their motivation for going somewhere is, I'm sick of this heat. I cannot take it anymore. I'm going to the beach or something, somewhere cooler. And that's often a motivation. But for the psalmist this morning, what are we looking at is, what is his motivation? What's his genesis of a journey? For the psalmist, I would say that the, his motivation, his genesis of a journey is a holy discontentment. His genesis is a holy discontentment. Now, this is different from a, just a regular average discontentment. Discontentment is like wanting your, you know, you have selfish preferences. I want this. I want that. And if I don't get that, then I'm discontent. I'm unhappy. But this is not that kind of discontentment. This is a holy, that's an important adjective, meaning that it's different than a regular discontentment. This is a person who wants not something for themselves. They want something bigger than that. They want something that God wants. That's what makes it holy, is that their desire is wanting what God wants, his creational design for the world. And, and he's discontent because he doesn't see it and the world that he's living in, and the places that he's living in. He's not seeing God's creational design. He's not seeing God's will be done. And Jesus prayed this in his Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our longing, that's our prayer, that we don't see that being done. 
And so we pray to God that that would be done. And so he's sick of the state of the world he's living in. He mentions a few things. He mentions lying, deceitful tongue. He mentions violence. That's the world that he's living in. That's the people that, that's what they're characterized by. The people he's living among. That's what they are, are like. Now in verse 5, he mentions two places. Um, he mentions uh, Meshach and Kedar. So it says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. These are two historically rooted places. Meshach, if you're going to think of Israel just like in the middle of an arbitrary map, you have Meshach to the north, far above it, away from the land, away from the temple. And then you have Kedar, which is in the exact opposite direction. It's in the south, but it's also away from the land and away from the temple. So his point is that he's living far from God. He's living spatially far, and he has to come to God. Now, but, the, but it's not just a spatial problem, right? He's not just like, I am tired of living in these places because, you know what? Their, their real estate is not very good. Um, they don't have amusement parks here. I mean, he's not like upset that their places aren't fun to be. He's upset because it's not just a spatial problem, it's a relational problem. What he's really upset about is that the people that are in the places that he's living in are living in a way that's not what God wants human life to be about. It's not God's creational design. And so he mentions lying, deceit, and he mentions violence. That that's what the people are like, that's what the places I'm living are like, and I don't like that. I am tired of living there. I'm tired of living in the state of the world that it's in, and I want something more. I want what God wants for the world, and therefore, I'm going to God. I'm going on pilgrimage, and I'm going to go there. And in our world, it's not much different than his world. Right? Our world is filled with violence. Our, our world is filled with lies and deceit. And... Spatial problem. It's not like where do we go? I mean, God is everywhere. He's present everywhere. And so we don't we don't think of God as like far away spatially because we know that God is is here. He's not a deistic, this super transcendent God that has nothing to do with the world. He created it, he set it up, he let it go, and he steps out of history and really does nothing with it. That's not the God that we worship. That's not the God that's the true God. This God cares intimately about the world. He he wants what is good for us. And so we know it's not a spatial problem. It's a relational problem. Our world's heart is far from God, though God is so near to each of us, as Paul quotes in in Acts 17. And so it's it's not a spatial thing. It's a relational thing. Our world is far from God. And so if this, the psalmist wants a different kind of world, he wants a different kind of world. And so he wants to go where God's peace could be found. And so the only place where that could be found is where God is. And so he makes his journey to, to God. And our world is, is very discontent. Very discontent. And our country's discontent. Our political life is discontent. The left, the right. It's a mess, right? And, and everyone is, is promising the other side, you know, oh, that's their problem. It's, you know, if you came to us, life would be better. And humans, we've been preaching utopia. We've been promising this, this promise of peace. And, and yet, 
I mean, it's not happened. Psalmist doesn't go, he doesn't trust in a human institution. Because human beings are broken. Human beings are part of the institution. And so if we're broken, then the whole thing's going to be broken. And how could we expect God's peace to come by us? It has to be only one solution. It has to come by God. And so it's not the political left that's going to bring the peace of God on earth, but it's the one who left heaven and came to earth and died on the cross and rose from the grave that's going to bring the peace of God on earth. It's not the political right that's going to bring the peace of God on earth, but the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that's the one who's going to bring the peace of God on earth. It's not the political center who's going to bring the peace of God on earth. It's the one who is at the center of all things, the one that at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Lord. He's the one coming. He's the one going to come bring the peace of God. He's the only one who can bring the peace of God. So don't go to these human institutions. Don't rely on them. Don't put your trust in them because they're just going to fail you. They're just going to empty. These are going to have empty promises. But Jesus is coming, and he's bringing the true peace of God that our hearts long for. And so if our world, there's no peace of God found here. If it's a world full of violence and, and lies and deceit, then it's not our home. It's not our true home. Just like the psalmist, this is a journey back home, in fact. That he wants a different world. He believes in a different world. And he's going to go to the God who's going to bring that. And so for us, too, it's our journey back home. But why aren't we home? Why is this the state of which we find ourselves in? Well, to answer that question, we have to go to the original story, the human story, found in Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis 1, there is this good creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the God. He is the only God. He is the only eternal existing God. And he creates everything from nothing. He is the source of life. And in Genesis 1, it's a very, it's a very rhythmic passage. And it talks about God creating all these things, whether it's the land, vegetation, uh, birds, fish, animals, and it said after every day that he sees it, and he sees that it was good. This is super foundational that everything that was created by God, and everything that was created by God was good. And then, it's like the text is interrupted. It slows way down. It was very rhythmic, had the same thing going. It's like, yeah, yeah, morning, evening, first day, second day, third day, I, yeah. And then all of a sudden it just stops, slows way down, and God begins to contemplate within himself. And so you know the text, he's trying to tell you something big's happening, because all of a sudden there's an interruption, which means something big's going to happen. And what has happened out of that is that God then creates humanity. And he creates humanity in his own image. And then he, the creation that he just made... He then says humanity is to rule over it. 
that humanity now is to be his agents in the world as image bearers, those who, those who image him, who are like him. But God is the ultimate authority, of course. He is the one over all things. He's the one who created all things. But yet he, he makes humanity to be his partner in the world. And we image God by living like him, by living after him, by obeying underneath him and doing his will. And there was this, there was this garden. They call it Eden. And this Garden of Eden, this paradise, it was this perfect place of fellowship with God where humanity dwelled with God there. And there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree, God said not to eat of it. Now, he's the ultimate authority. He's the one who set everything up. He's the one who put this one tree and said, don't eat of it so that humanity could prove their obedience, prove their love to him by obeying him. So this is how I'm the authority. You, as humanity, are underneath God. You have a, we have a huge nobility, huge task, huge dignity, but yet we're not God. And the tree was to prove that. You are not God. You do as God says. And God gave humanity every other tree in the garden. I mean, God's abundance and goodness is overflowing, and yet there's one tree not to eat. There was this rebellious creature in the garden, and this rebellious creature tempts humanity to seize the power, to usurp God's authority. And humanity sees the tree, sees the fruit of the tree. And humanity defines it as good. It says the food was good in their eyes to good for food and good for wisdom. Now in Genesis chapter 1, we have God. Who's the one seeing and goodness? It's God. God's the one who sees it. God's the one who calls it good. Now in Genesis 3, we got humanity now doing that. Humanity is now seeing and defining something as good. But yet God had said that that tree was off limits to you, was off limits to humanity. But humanity ignores God. It disobeys God. It doesn't care. It wants what it wants, and it wants that fruit. And if it wants, if it's good, it's good if it's good to me. No matter what God thinks, and that's what humanity does. Humanity chooses it and commits cosmic treason against God. And so, death results from this. Physical death. Spiritual death. And humanity is, is kicked out, exiled from the garden. The first exile was Genesis 3. Our home, our home, what we were created for, image bears in the fellowship, perfect fellowship in the garden, underneath God's authority, in this beautiful, perfect place. That's our home. That's what we were created for. But guess what? We're out. And so we've been homeless. We've been exiled ever since that moment. But there's this, there's this deep collective memory, uh, memory of the human being. That we remember paradise. We remember that we once had something, but we've lost it. That something is wrong. 
And so we go looking for it. We go looking for what, what's wrong. And, and we go searching and searching and searching, and we try to find our fulfillment, our satisfaction, the peace that's missing, the thing, the longing, this inconsolable longing that we have, and we go looking for it, and we try to find it in all these other things, and we end up doing a lot of this is we end up searching for it in created things rather than the creator himself. But we were created for the creator, we were created for him, to be in perfect fellowship with him. We weren't created for these things, and yet we think that we can get our, our fulfillment and longing for them. But what we've done is just like what we did with the tree, is we define good now according to what we think is good, rather than listening to what God thinks is good. And we think that's good, that's fine for me, but that's not what we were created for, and so it's not good. Because we were created for God. St. Augustine and his awesome confessions, says, very famous line, says, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find rest in, in you. And human beings, we are restless. We're searching. We're longing. And these things are, these things are telling us something. They're telling us something. Hunger exists for a reason. It's telling you you need food. The thing is, is where do we go to satisfy our craving, our longing? And what, what, what the Bible says is that we were created for God. And so we're always going to have that longing until we find our rest in Him, our satisfaction in Him. Because that's what we were created for. And so, but our exile then is self-imposed. We've chosen our own death. We've chosen it for ourselves. We have no one to blame but ourselves. God gave us everything. Everything we need. And we've chosen otherwise. And so, when we make those choices and we end up choosing the wrong things, if we're not choosing God, it's the wrong thing, then what we end up doing is we always end up in a, in a pigsty. Jesus talks about a pigsty in his famous parable of the prodigal son, found in Luke 15. And really, this is a, this is a retelling of the Genesis story, of the Israel story, of the human story, our story. There's this, there's this father, and he had, he had two sons, Younger of the two, he, he asks his father, he tells his father, really, he wants his inheritance. Now, usually the way you got your inheritance was the father died naturally and passed on his stuff to the son, what he was owed. But the father is very much still alive when the, when the son asks for it. So essentially he's saying, yeah, dad, I want you dead and I want your stuff. And the father, he doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't say, son, that hurts me. Like, why are you saying that? Why are you you're, you're calling me, you want me to be dead? He doesn't say, he doesn't deny him, but he simply lets him have what he wants. Fine, you want it? Take it. And so he does. And he goes off into a far country, just like the psalmist. He's in a far country, just like an exile, a far country country. 
far away from his father. And what does he do? He ends up squandering everything. Squandering everything, and he ends up hiring himself out to a pig farmer, which if you know anything about Jews and pigs, they don't like each other. At least Jews don't like pigs. I don't know if pigs have an opinion. But, um, probably not. But he ends up in a pigsty. A pigsty. He's like wanting to eat the food of the pigs. And the thing is, is this is us. This is what we've done. We have said, Father, God, we don't want anything to do with you. We want our inheritance. We want, just give us what we want. And we end up taking, and we end up defining what we think is good. Well, that was a good decision that we don't want anything to do with God, that we can make it on our own. And we always end up in the same place, empty in a pigsty broken. Why? Because we were created for those things. Those things weren't made for us. We were not made to be satisfied by that, that we ruin. And all these promises, the promises of sin, they're just going to leave you broken. They're just going to leave you empty. They're just going to leave you robbed and leave you in a pigsty. And so this guy hits rock bottom. And he's got nowhere else to go. And sometimes hitting rock bottom is actually the mercy of God. Because you actually get to the place where you, at the end of your rope, you have nowhere to go. You are literally empty. It's like the guy in Luke 18 where he's, he says, I am, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Like he can't even look up because he just is at the end of his life and he has got nothing. And so the only place he can go to is God. And sometimes I feel like those, the person that just thinks, I've only got this, or I've only got that job, I've only got that spouse, I've only got that kind of money, or that much money, and, and more money, and more money, then I'll be happy, is they will never come to the point, they're never going to realize that they are empty, that they are broken, and the thing that they're looking for and thirsting after and searching is only going to leave them in a pigsty. So learn before you hit the pigsty <laughs> that it's not the way it was meant to be. You don't have to go there. Because God's saying he created you for himself. Go to God. So the the son, he's in this pigsty, right? And he comes to, it says he comes to his senses. And he's realizing what state he's in. Not a good one. And he, he starts to think about his father. And he starts to think, well, maybe, maybe my father will take me back as like a slave. I'll I'll, I'll work for him and probably won't be able to pay off the debt. But beats being in a pigsty. And so he begins to go back to his father. And then you switch over. The camera like switches over to the t- in the text to what the father, and, the, and it's like, what's his reaction going to be? I mean, his son basically told him, I want nothing to do with you, dad, and I, and, and I want your money, and, and I wanted you dead. And he goes off, and he, and he leaves. What's his father's reaction going to be? Is he going to get mad at his son? He's going to reject his son. But it says that from a long way off, His father sees his son coming. It's like every morning the father got up and he looked out toward the horizon and said, is this the day my son is coming home? He hoped and longed for his son to come home. And he sees him today was the day that he sees his son coming home and he takes off in a dead sprint. He runs to his son. 
He embraces his son. He throws a party for his son. And then he says these, these famous words. He says, this is my son who was dead but is now alive, who was lost but is now found. God wants so much more for us. He wants so much more for us than what we search and look after. That God created you for himself, that he is this complex being, that he is this triune community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so he has been a community of love for eternity. He is love because within himself he's been loving. And out of the abundance of his goodness, he didn't need to create anything, but out of the abundance of his goodness, he wants to share his love. It's a dynamic, overflowing action of God. And so he creates everything. And he creates humanity especially to participate and to share in this eternal love of God. That's what your hearts were created for. That's what you were created for. We are a shadow of ourselves, and we end up, we end up searching for these, these created things, which are so small compared to what we are created for. They are very poor substitutes of the love of God. Very poor substitutes. They can't hold the weight of what we were created for. And so these things are good. I mean, some of these things aren't bad. Like, all these things that God has created is a good thing. But they're not the ultimate thing. St. Augustine, he talks about disordered loves and our, and our, our bad priorities that we have. That what we do is we take good things that God created, but we make them ultimate things. And when we make them ultimate things, they weren't created to be that high on our love list, if you will, our love priority. They weren't made to be in that place, but we place them up there. But because we do that and we place them out of order, those things actually become corrupted. The goodness that they were meant to have are now not good. They are bad because they weren't meant to hold that. They can't hold that. So God is the one thing our hearts were created for. He's the person that we were created for. He's the one who can hold that priority. And then when we, when we have these other good things in our lives, we don't stop at the created thing, but we go to the creator, and we thank God for the good things in our lives. But we don't think that these things, these good things, are the ultimate things. Because we know that they all come from somewhere, from someone who loves us. And we don't just say, yeah, God, thank you for these things. Forget about you. We say, these things are awesome. Thank you, God. But you're my heart's desire. You're the one I was created for, not these things. But I can experience your goodness in them. And so, oh, Christian, do not stop at created things. Celebrate them but celebrate the God who created them to celebrate the God who created you because he's the one who loves you. He's the one that created you for himself and he's the one that can fill our empty souls. So throw yourself on the God who created you. But how can we return if if we're part of the problem, if we've messed it up just like 
the prodigal son, how can we return? Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, they both have, have this piercing question. And this question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend? Same thing as Song of Ascends. To go up. Who's going to go up? And it gives qualifications about who can go up. Psalm 24 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 15 has a lot of different qualifications, but one of them is, does no evil to his neighbor. Now there's no one amongst us that could say, yeah, I've done everything right, and I've done everything purely. And I've, or I've never done evil to my, my neighbor. But yet there's Psalm 120, the guy wants justice. I mean, verse 4 is a bit uncomfortable, to be honest, if you're reading it, right? About, about the coal thing and the, the warrior's arrows and pretty dark stuff, like wanting judgment on, on evil. But if we're real, like, if evil is a bad thing, we don't like evil. It's messed up the world. It's messed up our lives. We see it all over the place. And, and, and we want the justice of God. We yearn for it because we believe that God is good and that he wants goodness to reign. Not evil. Evil is, is, is not a, was not a part of God's original intentional design. That it's, He created a good world, not an evil. Evil is this aberration thing that came into it. And we don't want it here. It's not, it's not original. It's not what we want it's going to leave eventually. That's our hope because of Jesus. And so we desire justice. We want God's good world to be good and not to be filled with evil. But yet when I look in the mirror, I see evil in the mirror. I see sin. I see filth. I see my own darkness, the same kind of stuff that I want removed from the world. But if I want that removed from the world, then I mean I got to be removed from the world, and I don't want that. I want justice, but yet I need mercy. So is there a way that we can have both? And the good news of the gospel is yes and amen, to quote that song. To yes and amen that the good news of the gospel is that there is justice, and there is mercy. That there was someone who ascended the hill of the Lord. That Jesus died on the cross, that he took the punishment. That he died for our sins. And that justice was done on Jesus, that, that sin was, was defeated in him. That he rose from the grave, he defeated the evils and the powers of darkness. And so we are, we celebrate that. We celebrate the justice of God, that God doesn't look away from evil. God doesn't ignore evil. God doesn't accept evil, but God hates evil a lot too, that he doesn't want evil in his good created world, but he's got to deal with it. And so he wanted, we want justice. And Jesus got that done for us on the cross, that he was the one. And yet there's mercy because it wasn't us who died. It was Jesus who died for us. He died for our sin. And so we have justice and we have mercy together. And so how did he achieve this peace as he ascended a hill? He ascended the hill of Calvary and he died on the cross doing the justice of God doing the mercy of God. 
And so Romans 3, 21 through 26, beautiful section. And at the end it says, so that God could be both the just and the justifier in Jesus. Isaiah 53, classic text, says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to his own way, but he laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Jesus is the one who brought our peace. And so Jesus is our way home. He's the one who could reconcile us to the Father, which would bring us the peace that we need so that we could go home. And so God... There's this eternal embrace in Jesus that he wants to shout over us. He wants to shout over you that you were his son. You were his, you were his daughter who was once dead but is now alive. Who was once lost but is now found. But you have to be found in Jesus Christ. As John 14, 6 says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. He is our peace. He is the only way home. Because he's the only one who dealt with our sin. And he's the one who had mercy upon us and died for our sin. He's the only one who can lead us home and bring us the peace that we long for. But what do we do now? That God wants us to be peacemakers in the world right now. That this is not uh, home or whatever. That heaven is not some escape from the world. As if we want nothing to do with the world. We just take us away. The idea that, that the material world is evil is a Greek philosophical idea that came into the church through church history early on and is kind of stuck around. But Genesis 1 is quite affirming that God created everything good, that the material world is good. So we don't want God to abandon the world. We don't want him to just leave it. We want him to come and rescue it. We want him to redeem it. We want new creation. That's what we want. Peace on earth in that. And that is what he's done already in Jesus Christ, that at his death, he was raised from the dead, Jesus starts new creation. It's a new day. It's a new dawn that the world history is never going to be the same because Jesus has already started new creation. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that if you are in Christ, you too are a new creation. The process has already begun. We have the peace of God, and now we just wait for the final peace. We are this in this already but not yet tension where the sun has risen, but yet it's not noon, that yet we have this peace of God, but yet we still wait for the final peace. And so what God calls us to do right now is to be peacemakers, to be witnesses, to be light in this world. Jesus in Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. That God has called us to be part of his redemptive mission in the world. That he's redeemed us. That he's embraced us. And now he calls us to go out and be that redemptive influence. To be peace to the world. To be the light of the world. Now Jesus is the light of the world. But we also, he says in Matthew 5, are the light of the world. When he shines through us. 
And so when you are peace wherever you go, that our darkness of this world becomes light, that our winter becomes spring, that our death becomes life, and this exile becomes home. And so sojourners, travelers, exiles, Jesus is the way home. He is the bread, the living bread that will satisfy your soul. He's the living water that will satisfy our every longing. He's the one who said that come to me all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. That God's eternal embrace is open for all who come. And so if you haven't embraced Jesus and you haven't received the peace of God for your life, we invite you, I'm going to pray in just a moment. We invite you to come up after the prayer. There'll be pastors up here, deacons, elders. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love for you to receive the peace of God and invite you to come home. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can call you Father because that means that we have been redeemed. That means we have peace with, with, with you. That we have this eternal embrace, Father. We admit, we confess that we have gone astray. But Lord, in your goodness and in your mercy, you have brought us back through the blood of Jesus, through his peace that he provided for us. And so we praise you and we thank you. Lord, help us to be peacemakers in this world. Be with this Grace Community Church. May we show grace to the world to show you, Lord, your character, your love, your kindness. And so people come to know you and receive peace that we most desperately long for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in the peace of Christ.